You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. This summer I moved into a neighborhood in Muncie, the town where I live, on the south side of Muncie. It's uh, the other side of the railroad tracks, if you will. It's a neighborhood um, whose inhabitants are judged and condemned already. Trial's already been, it's already happened. Everyone's made up their mind about who these folks are. Uh, even the names of, given to this place, names like Shedtown, Foxtown, Describe the dwellings that these working-class folks from Tennessee and Kentucky uh, built when they moved up to work in this GM plant um, that is no longer there, and the ball canning factory, which is no longer there, and many other factories, which are no longer there. Um, When all those factories closed and all these neighborhoods full of people were without work and without options for employment, Um, these neighborhoods on the south side kind of spiraled. Um, Lazy, unmotivated, backwards, mooching off the system. That's what people say about the people who live on my block. And on many others like it in South Muncie, many have not had steady employment since the early 2000s. Pedophiles, perverts, sexual predators. That's what people say about the higher concentration of sexual offenders who live in the neighborhoods like mine because when they get out of prison, this is the only place that they can afford to live. Crazy people, freaks, nut jobs. I mean, that's that's what people say about my neighbors like uh, Charles who became schizophrenic in his early 20s. He walks up and down the street smoking cigarettes and cussing, talking to himself. Adverse childhood experiences, hereditary factories, drug use have created a higher than normal population uh, of people with mental illnesses in my neighborhood. And it's only exasperated by poverty and a lack of mental health services that are available. Druggies, junkies, meth heads, drunks, those, are, those describe the people who are addicted to drugs, really any drug they can find on the streets. Nearly every home has someone living in it who is battling addiction. People whose pleasure centers in their brains have been rewired through continued usage of street drugs to prefer drugs rather than a healthier way of life that so many people on the other side of the tracks know a lot more about. Vagrants, street people, drifters. Describe the people in my neighborhood who live on the streets or in abandoned houses or in sheds or garages on the back of people's properties. Um, A lot of people in Neighborhoods on the south side of Muncie live like this, finding places that give, give out free food and free clothes while living in places without electricity or gas or running water. 
criminals, repeat offenders. Describe most of the folks in my neighborhood who have spent time in jail and in prison. It's hard to find a guy under 40 years old without a felony record. Most of them are drug-related charges or domestic violence charges or uh, charges for theft. Felony records, of course, keep people from finding good jobs and keeping steady employment. And I could, I could keep going with the things that people have to say about people on my block. Poor people. Southsiders. The people that, who go to Walmart and take pictures of people and post them online, those are the pictures of people that are in my neighborhood. My neighborhood is one where few people choose to live, but a lot of people end up there. Places where the, the political systems and policies that exist in our town and problems that we try to keep hidden end up like a gutter draining down into this place. And that's just where all the stuff that no one wants to deal with ends up. And the sad thing is, is there's a lot of folks that I know, even some Christians in my town, who think of these people as throwaway people. My wife and I and the couple of kids that we have left, um, we wanted to move there because we wanted to be friends uh, with people who were different from us and people who've lived a really different story than we have. And um, it's partly because we had gotten to know people over the course of several years through meals and experiences and events. And, and um, I guess we just wanted their problems to become our problems. At the end of the message, I want to tell you about some of the friends that I've gotten to know. But um, over the last couple of years, we have, we have known people in a different way than I've ever known people before. The, actually, the place where I've lived, I drove by that place a lot of times in my um, 30 or so years in Muncie. And um, I didn't care to know a single thing about that place until just a couple of years ago. When we sold our house on the west side of Muncie, uh, we sold it to a police officer. And uh, he asked us where we were moving. I told him we were moving into the Avondale neighborhood. And he said, why in the world would you want to move there? I want to read our passage today with that backdrop. Um, I understand that this is the last passage that you guys will be looking at from the Sermon on the Mount uh, in the series of messages that you've done. And this is, this is important because this is actually a very much a culmination of many of the things that you have talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Before I do that, my name's Neil. Glad to be here. I brought my friend Darby with me, who's on staff with us. And um, uh, Darby and I were standing outside, and 
I won't, I won't embarrass this person, but they asked if we were someone's parents. Um, <laughs> I'm, I might be old enough to be someone's grandparent here, but um, I'm just Neil. Um, <laughs> okay, let's look at this verse. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. God, of course, intends that his word Um, and his kingdom would exist with order, that injustices would be held in check. And uh, Jesus is not talking here about doing away with law courts or without doing away with judges, uh, but the kind of judgments and condemnations that occur within the context of ordinary lives. As people set themselves up as moral guardians of each other, Moral guardians of one another. That's not a very good place for any of us to be. The reality, though, is the more familiar we become with the Bible, the more familiar we become with the ways of Jesus, the more familiar we become with the kingdom of God and the teachings and the more we're absorbing, we are more and more susceptible to becoming something that we should not become which is the moral guardians of other people. Jesus wants his disciples, and this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. He wants his disciples to know the difference between good and bad and to be able to discern right from wrong. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of, of the kind of life that he's teaching his disciples about. But the temptation to look down on each other for moral failures for mistakes, for differences of opinion, for different ways of seeing the world or different life choices. That is a temptation that we all have, and it's a temptation to put ourselves in the place of God. In James, uh, this is a familiar passage. It says, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you are sitting in judgment of it. That's James chapter 4, verse 11. Those who judge are assuming the posture of God because there is only one judge. We can try to be the one to determine right from wrong and who is right and who is wrong rather than leaving this task, this very important task, up to God. But kingdom people, and this is a part of the message of the New Testament, kingdom people are called to love, not to act and play the part of God. In the kingdom of God, God alone is the judge. Human judges will not even be needed. Because kingdom citizens will live under the reign of Jesus the Messiah, the King and Judge, in order to do the will of God. And this is what Jesus was trying to teach his people in this passage. God is the judge, so leave the judging to him. 
And then, of course, he goes on to say, you wouldn't be very good judges anyway. When I think about this passage, one of the places where um, it seems to me, um, this is just one of the places where this passage seems to be violated, uh, is in the world of Facebook. Um, Maybe it's just the friends that I have from high school or um, some of my old college friends. Uh, But I find that people are very free to post long diatribes about the judgments that they have to make about other people, about the rest of the world, the ideas and opinions that they have, um, as if they believe in some way that it is their job to let other people know the way it should be. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I don't have a problem with Facebook. I mean, Facebook is actually a good thing. What it does is it it reveals, I think, the way that people really think. So there's nothing wrong with a social media platform or, or a place like that, but it reveals something about what's going on inside of people and how it would come out. But another way of saying this that might help a little bit clear uh, make it clear, is of course we're, we're going to have discernment about right and wrong, uh, but Jesus, really what he's talking about is not condemning. Do not condemn or you too will be condemned by God at the judgment. John Wesley said this, he said, the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that's contrary to love. There's this pastor in town, um, that I've gotten to know, but I didn't know him for a long time. And uh, one thing I knew about him is that he had an affair. And I don't know exactly when it happened, but I remember hearing about it. And, um, and he was never removed from the leadership of his church for this affair. And then um, a couple years later, he ended up planning another church. And I remember whenever I would think about him, I think I, I, think I just wanted his church to fail. Um, because of his moral failure. Now, of course, I never took any time to try to get to know him or to try to meet him. But since I kind of ran into him through some different circumstances and got to know him and found that he is actually a really kind and generous thoughtful person who is actually a, trying to be a really good husband. He's trying to be a good father. And he actually has really mended a lot of the brokenness that he created through decisions in his life. But I would never have known that if I hadn't come to know him But I think about the things that I thought about him. Wanting his, I guess, failure or just wanting things not to work out for him because of his own moral choices. That's messed up. That's the kind of judging that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is intending to create a community that's marked by love and peace and humility and justice and reconciliation 
People who do not resort to judgment, but who would attempt to pursue mutual sanctification and fellowship together with other people, even people that are different from them. This does not mean, of course, that there isn't right or wrong, um, or there's not good or bad, or that we should not have discernment. Actually, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, being able to have discernment about right and wrong, good and bad. But we must learn to distinguish moral discernment from personal condemnation. After Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged, he goes on with this rather uh, ludicrous explanation of trying to help someone remove a speck from someone else's eye while you have a big log sticking out of your own eye. And of course, everyone at the time, and maybe even now, would be laughing about how ridiculous that is. The reality is that the people who seem most eager to tell other people what to do or what not to do are often the people who should take a closer look in the mirror before they begin doing that, right? I have said a lot of things that I regret. I have uh, done things that I've had to apologize for. I've, I've uh, all, you know, had all kinds of experiences where in the moment um, something happened and then I had to go back and make that up. Uh, uh, not that long ago, a couple days ago, I was working on a bike with this kid from the neighborhood because... Uh, he brought his bike over and asked if I could help fix his tire. So we're working on the bike, and, and I take the wrench, and I'm cranking down on the wrench, and it slips, and I bust my knuckle. And I said, well, I said the S word. I won't say it here in church. Um, and um, <laughs> he looked at me. He was like, what did you say? <laughs> And I said, I said, and I repeated myself. And um, now this kid, I got to say that about a week before, I took him on a bike ride with some other kids. And he, along with some of these other kids, accosted a group of drug addicts that were on the street. And he was calling them crackheads and losers. And I heard his voice say that. Um, and... Uh, so I thought instead of just saying, oh, I'm sorry I said that, I thought we would have a little lesson about what Jesus said. I said, are you, are you saying to me that you're really trying to watch your language? Um, and are you saying to me that it was a struggle for me when you cuss because I look up to you as an adult and, uh, and I'm trying to do a better job. I'm listening to my mother. I'm listening to my teachers who are trying to encourage me not to say those kind of words. I said, is that what you're saying? He goes, no, I ain't be trying to, I ain't be trying to stop cussing. <laughs> I was like, then leave me alone. I would have apologized to him if, if that was something that was standing in the way, but he had busted my knuckle and that's what flew out of my mouth. You should <laughs> hear me when I work on the car. Um, but if that causes offense to someone, of course, yes, I will apologize. But for some reason, over the years, why is it that as Christians we get so worked up about someone saying a bad word in a, uh, in a, um, a weak moment? We tend to be censorious or censorious. What, what's the right word for that? Not centurion, censorious. 
of other Christians, sometimes about some of the most insignificant of things, especially if this is a person who's a little bit different from us. But often we do that because we fail to see the failures that are in our lives, or, or at least we fail to admit them. That's the problem with not having an honest view of ourselves. After we have examined ourselves, after we have duly inspected ourselves through the searching guidance of the Holy Spirit, after we've confessed our sins and made peace with God, can we see others in such a way that we can strive to live together with them in peace and justice? And I think that's what Jesus is saying. He isn't saying there isn't a place to help remove the speck from uh, a brother or a sister's eye. But he's saying you have to do that after you take the log out of your own eye. And by the way, you have a log in your eye and they just have a speck. We must deal first with ourselves. There's this uh, friend of mine who's joined us in some of the neighborhood ventures that we have done on the south side, and his name's Mark. He didn't grow up in that neighborhood. Um, he was a uh, Aunt Millie's bread driver for a lot of years, and um, he just banked a ton of money. And uh, he retired. He's pretty wealthy. He's really financial responsible. He treats people with kindness. He likes to pray for people. And uh, something that he's told me over the last year, and he says it all, t- all the time, He says, I am no different from any homeless person that I have met here. And when he says it, I actually believe that he means that. He recognizes that he has problems just like anyone that he might sit down uh, across from at a meal and have conversation with. He doesn't mind having people ride in his car, and he's got actually has a super nice car. He doesn't mind people smelling or or being dirty or taking advantage of him. And he doesn't look down his nose. And he said he used to do that, actually, until he started coming to those meals. And while he was sitting down with people, he realized this person is no different from me. And so he just stopped judging them. He stopped thinking of them as lazy, irresponsible, unmotivated. I think what Jesus does and what he wants to do in our lives is kind of a complex thing. He wants to create self-awareness in us. And that self-awareness leads to self-judgment, which in turn leads to humility. And that humility leads to repentance. And then it leads to sanctification. And then that leads to the kind of humility that can sit down with another person And treat that person with mercy. Who are you judging? Who do you have a problem judging? And sometimes when you're of high intelligence, it can be easy to judge people of low intelligence. I mean, imagine what it's like for me, being from the Harvard of the Midwest, Ball State University, (laughs) And coming here to speak to all of you, I mean, you're just, you're just lowly U of I students. I mean, imagine the struggle that I'm having right now just to not judge you 
because we are so intellectually superior at my school. That, of course, is a joke. Um, and it's the kind of joke that's meant to make you think, oh, yeah, that's actually what I was doing with you when I heard when you were from Ball State. <laughs> I told my wife's cousin, who used to be a part of this church in this neighborhood where we now live, uh, that I would never, uh, he asked me if I would consider being a pastor there. And I said I would never do that. Um, and then someone asked me a couple of years later if I would ever consider living down there. And I said, no, uh, because it's too ugly. Um, I said that. And it is kind of ugly, actually, because there was a GM plant that was there, and it's been completely tore down. And so there's this huge, empty, toxic lot that exists. Well, actually, now where I live, I can see it right. It's in my backyard. Um, and it is not beautiful. It's very, it's very ugly. Um, but I said, no, I would never live there um, because it's not beautiful enough. Um, I remember when I first met Charles, I told you about him. He's the guy with schizophrenia. Um, I remember he would, he would come to our meals and he would just pace out in front of the street. We used to grill out on the street and then eat it in the lawn and and uh, he would just pace back and forth. Sometimes he would eat, but mostly he would just pace back and forth and cuss. And, um, and everyone was a little, I don't know, on edge or unnerved or didn't know what to do um, with him. And so I just tried to start talking to him. And um, Charles doesn't have any teeth. And so when he started talking, I couldn't really understand much of what he was saying. But, but each week I would stand and I, I learned his name. And so I would just say hi, and we would stand there talking, and, and most of the time we would just, I mean, he would just say stuff, and I would just nod my head like I understood what he was saying, and, and, um, and then he would get some food and he would leave. And I remember one time we were standing on the street, and um, he had actually shown up at that church, and I had been asked to speak that particular Sunday, and I was telling the story about Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness, and he, you know, Satan had him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he told him to throw himself down, and he would pick him up. And then Charles starts into this story, and I could actually kind of understand what he was saying. He was talking about how one time he was standing on the edge of this gravel pit with some friends, and they were all holding hands, and on the count of three, they were going to jump off. And he said this because that story about Jesus reminded him of that. And, um, and on the count of three, one, two... Three, his friends jumped off, but he did it, and he started laughing. And then I started laughing. And then <laughs> we started laughing even more. We were laughing really hard on the street, and I think that's what he was talking about, but I'm not exactly sure that that's what he was saying. And um, we laughed for maybe like a minute about that. That's a long time to laugh about something. And I don't know why, but now when Charles shows up, I can understand what he's saying. I mean, like, we can have conversation. A couple of years ago, uh, maybe like a year and a half ago, I went to Colorado for a week. And when I came back, Charles asked me, he said, how was Colorado? I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, now when I stop by Charles' house, 
we stay on this porch and talk. Boy, the, the judgment that I had about him when I first met him. I've learned some of his story since then. He, um, he uh, used to work for the sanitary district in Muncie. He jumped down into a hole and he got pricked by a needle. Um, and he got uh, hepatitis. And that was around the time that he uh, developed schizophrenia too. And his life has just been so different from the life he started living. So a couple of years ago, actually Darby and I and um, uh, a couple other people, we started doing these meals together with the pastor of this church as a way to just meet people in the neighborhood because we had a free summer and we thought we can be available to help and, um, and I don't mind meeting strangers, so we walked around the neighborhood and prayed for people and walked up to their porches and stood on their porches and talked to them and invited them and prayed for them. And um, we got to know a lot of people that I would never know. Actually, people that have become, um, I've become so fond of that my wife and I we're excited to move into this neighborhood. I, someone told me once, he was like, Neil, you, you are a real hero for moving down there. I think I'm, this has nothing to do with anything heroic, but it has to do with me knowing people that I didn't know and having things like my opinions, my judgments, challenged and changed by being in relationship with people. One last story here before I close. Um, I got this grant uh, a little while back to do this bike club. Like they were offering these like $500 grants and I thought, well, there's a lot of kids that are just kind of running the streets and uh, most of them are young, like late elementary, middle school age, and they just have nothing to do. So they're getting in trouble all the time and sometimes the police are getting involved in, in it and um, uh, I thought, well, most, a lot of them didn't have bikes. And I thought, well, I'll try to get some of my friends to donate bikes, old broken bikes, and then we'll fix them. We'll teach kids how to fix bikes, then they'll know how to fix a bike. And then at the end of the time, they can take one of those bikes with them. And, uh, and it actually didn't really cost that much money because I know a guy at a bike shop who's willing to sell me used parts for really cheap. And so we started doing it. And I remember when I uh, was getting ready to start the first night, we did it four Sundays, four Sunday nights, and the first one, I just thought, I don't want to do this. I don't like kids, uh, and I don't like these kids because they're, uh, they're mean to each other, they're, um, they're dirty, um, they, their parents don't seem to really care that much about where they're out and what they're doing, and uh, they remind me of things that I have a hard time with. And so I was just dreading this. But I invited some friends to help me, and then there was this guy that lived down the street, and I told him I was doing this bike club, and, and uh, um, he said he would help. And he is a person who's been coming to our meals, and he doesn't, um, um, I don't, I'm not even sure he, I'm, I'm 
confident he never finished high school. I'm not even sure if he finished junior high. And uh, I learned this story about him as we were doing these uh, bike clubs from the guy at the bike store who's known him most of his life and found out that this, this guy, uh, when he was in middle school, uh, his parents didn't want him. And so they put him in an um, insane asylum, that's what he called it, um, a mental institution. And he lived there for three years. And when he got out, they just let him out onto the streets and no one wanted to take care of him. I was like, wow, I could really have some compassion for him now because he, he is a grown-up person who's like a fourth grader in the way he talks. And before, it was always kind of annoying to me. But now, well, that makes a lot more sense why maybe he acts that way. But he's a really good bike mechanic. Like, really good. And, um, and he's been fixing bikes his whole life. So he, now I did have to kind of keep him from interacting too much with the kids because he just kept saying weird stuff, like asking if, the, if they have ever had a six-pack or something like that. You know, he's, he's uh, 58 years old, and these kids are like 11. Um, <laughs> so we had to kind of keep him from saying weird things. But um, he taught these kids how to fix bikes. And all those bikes that are there are bikes that those kids fixed up and uh, now own, and they ride. So we took these kids on a, on a bike ride on the last day. And my wife, I talked her into going. I talked a couple other people into going that were helping out with this. And um, these kids were like wild animals. Um, they like ran their bikes into each other and knocked each other off their bikes um, I told you about the fight that they tried to pick with the, the people that were on drugs on the street. And, um, I mean, it was, it's like the Wild West out there. We rode by one house, and I think this lady recognized some of the kids, and she told them she was going to go in and get a gun, and she was going to come out and shoot them. And uh, she said she was going to sick her pit bull on them, and then she was going to throw them in the juvenile detention center. And uh, <laughs> poor little kids are like a, a 10 and 11 years old. Um, when I got home, my wife got home, we sat on the couch, completely exhausted, and I said, I will never take that many kids on a bike ride again, um, uh, because that was horrible. And Kelly said something to the effect of, wasn't it amazing to just be able to be a part of their life? No adult has probably ever been a part of a bike ride with them. And we got to just, well, we got to see them in their natural habitat. And, um, you know, those kids come by my house all the time now to borrow a wrench, fix a bike. And I don't feel the way that I felt about them before I started the bike club. I don't think about them as kids that I don't want around and kids whose problems bother me because they're too, I don't know, they're too big to be able to address. I just think about them as Keith and Jamar and Josh and Peyton and Hunter. Um, Jesus said that we should not judge or we will be judged. And the way that we judge others, that's how we're going to be judged. And that we should first 
remove whatever plank is sticking out of our eye before we try to help. I don't know, maybe that's a good word, or, or come alongside of, or show mercy or grace to another person. Um, I wish we could talk about all of the practical applications for that here in this room. Uh, we can't really do that, but, but if we could all just speak up and we could just say, like, here is, um, here's, here's the people that I judge. Or here's the person that I judge. Here's the person I can't accept. I think what we would all end up doing is we, we would all kind of together come to this realization that we need to kind of start looking inward at ourselves first so that we could be the merciful, compassionate, forgiving, kind, humble people that Jesus is calling to in his kingdom. So let me, let me just pray for that, that God would continue to do that work inside of us.